Thank you, Ben. It is so good to be with you on this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, What a time we've had already. This is a great weekend. I just love the worship this morning. Wasn't it great to enter into these beautiful songs and express them from our hearts? Uh, The faith and trust that we have in our Lord. Uh, I wish that we had the opportunity to have each one of you come up here and share why you're excited about Easter. Should we do that? I'd love to hear from all of you. There's so much that we have to share together. But we're going to take this time to look at <clears throat> the word from Mark chap- Mark's gospel. You know, when our kids were young, it's true, we engaged them in the annual Easter egg hunt at Easter time. Paying little attention, I'm sure, to the origin of this idea. <clears throat> Later, as teenagers and... Um, Young adults, our children used to joke that their dad could begin to hide his own Easter eggs. You've probably heard that before. Someone once asked me about the origin of the word Easter. I thought it probably came from some pagan fertility idea, but I wasn't sure. The question sent me to do a little research. As it turns out, it seems quite probable that the word Easter came from the old English Esther, or the German Ostern. And it seems to refer to the name of a pagan goddess of the dawn. And since springtime came in the north, and I mean springtime in the north brings increased sunshine, this goddess was given special attention. Paganism, as you know, is a form of idolatry that attributes spiritual power to various aspects of nature in contrast to the one who has been made known to us in Scripture as the creator and savior. Uh, Easter, it seems, many have believed, became the name of the God responsible for light and spring and fertility. And it's possible that the word Estrogen, easily associated with the idea of fertility, is also related to this word. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. So, little wonder then that the rabbit, with its high reproductive capacity, became a favorite symbol of Easter. So then you can understand how eggs also became associated with Easter. Even the erratic timing of Easter each year is more related to the spring equinox than it is to the actual time of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, at first it may be rather troubling to think about the pagan origins of the word Easter and its related pagan symbols, but in the end, it's evident that the word Easter was adopted by early Christians to correspond to the Jewish Passover, which also became the time of Jesus' horrible crucifixion and his glorious resurrection. Easter is an example of how Christian meanings have transformed the origin of various pagan ideas and symbols, and of course, 
This is also true of various uh, expressions or practices at Christmas time. And so it's the case that some of those pagan symbols of Easter are still with us, like the marketing hype surrounding chocolate eggs and rabbits. <laughs> As Christian parents, we have to decide whether or not to make something out of this. Maybe a time is coming when Christians will totally dissociate themselves with the name Easter and its pagan origins. Instead, they will refer to the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the new Passover or something like that. Wouldn't that be great? But for now, Easter remains the most important celebration of the year for Christians around the world because it takes us back to that crucial time when the one believed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, became a sacrifice for the sin of the world and then rose again in triumph over death and the grave. We already had a reading this morning of the resurrection account from the book of John. Here are the words concerning that event from Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as you, as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, <clears throat> the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone <laughs> because they were so afraid. Well, <clears throat> as you probably <clears throat> uh, can tell <clears throat> this uh, uh, each of the gospel gives a slightly different description of what took place on that first Easter morning as far as the sequence of events is concerned and that actually aids us in understanding the validity the authenticity of the accounts given to us concerning the resurrection several different perspectives that together emphasize the truth that we're considering. All of the accounts <clears throat> speak about things starting by some women. They were the first ones to go to the tomb <clears throat> on that first Easter morning. According to the story here in Mark, there were three of them. There was Mary Magdalene, who figures prominently in the story. She was the woman of Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, whom Jesus delivered from terrible bondage to seven demons. If you've seen the, the, the movie series, The Chosen, it's very interesting how they portray Mary's deliverance from those demons. 
uh, and I commend that to you. This woman must have been so grateful and became a devoted follower of Jesus. She is one of the women there at the time of the crucifixion, and she watches where they place his body. According to John, she is also the first person to talk with Jesus after his resurrection. Then there is Mary, the mother of James. Matthew 27 identifies her as the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph. And as you probably know, there are several James in the New Testament. And this one was probably James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the disciples, sometimes called James the Less. How would you like to be called James the Less? And uh, not to distinguish him from James the More. I'm not sure. <clears throat> maybe he was in sh- short. Uh, maybe he was a bit shorter than the other James, which is why he may have been called that. <clears throat> um, anyway, this Mary is also identified in another place as Mary um, of Clopas, possibly meaning the wife of Clopas. She might also have been a cousin or relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Interesting how things happened in the family during that time. Because then there's Salome, and she too might have been a relative of Mary's. Possibly the younger sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She also seems to have been the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen. So those men would have been Jesus' nephews, right? Or cousins? I don't know. Anyway, she was the one who asked Jesus if her son's could sit with Jesus in his kingdom, Matthew twenty twenty. In any case, it must have been a very sad little troop of women that walked to the tomb early on that historic Sunday morning. Can't you just see them trudging along in the semi-darkness? It's hard to imagine the intense emotional pain they must have felt about what they had just seen in Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Just think of it for a minute. They had just witnessed the painful crucifixion of this most beloved person in their lives, and they had been helpless to do anything about it. Helpless is an appropriate word for many of us at various times in our lives. Despite their resilience, I'm sure it's true that these women especially felt this sense of vulnerability and helplessness at this time and often do in general. Mary, the actual mother of Jesus, though she had been at the crucifixion, was not among them. John the disciple had taken her to his own home. Her grief must have been overwhelming. Simeon's prophecy in Luke 2, that a sword would pierce her own soul, was now being fulfilled. You know, I suppose there's no grief like the grief that comes to a parent whose child is suffering. As has been said, once a mother, always a mother. Probably every mother knows something of that sorrow. But that would have undoubtedly described Mary at this time, but in a far greater way than we might ever imagine. And that was something, too, the grief that her friends shared as they sadly wended their way to the tomb that early Sunday morning. Saturday would have been a very, very difficult and painful day for them. 
You know, as long as a person is alive, there's hope that something might change. But when a person dies, that ends everything. And now these ladies' best friend had died. Death is so final. Any thoughts of hope these women might have had before his actual death would now have been dashed. Even though they may have remembered that he had said something about seeing them again, about his resurrection. You know, sooner or later, we all know what it is like to feel overwhelmed by disappointment and heavy sorrow. It's one of the realities of our lives here on earth. So many times during our lives, things don't turn out like we imagine they will. The dreams that we have aren't realized, or the blessings we've had, we have are suddenly taken away. And at least for a time, and sometimes for a long time, our hopes are dashed. Much has been written about these experiences, which someone has described as the dark night of the soul. The words of Psalm 13 come to mind. They say, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But this psalm does end with some beautiful words as well. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So it must have been for these women, though, that the first part of this psalm especially reflected their feelings. And even though Jesus was gone, still they cared. So typical of these women, they, they cared for his body because it held the spirit and soul of the person that they had loved so much. And out of love and respect, they carry expensive spices to put on Jesus' body for a more honorable decay, if such was possible. It was a custom in Israel at that time. And you have to bless these women for their love and thoughtfulness in these circumstances. But on the way, they suddenly remember a very important detail. The stone... Had been rolled, that had been rolled in place and sealed the tomb was very, very heavy. And so they mused, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? It's the only word that they have as they're walking together to the tomb that morning. Um, <clears throat> sorrow upon sorrow now. Maybe they won't even be able to do the one last thing that they possibly could do for him. It's a pretty dark walk for them at that time of the day in more ways than one. But almost numb with emotional pain now, they press on. And then we come to those words that begin to change everything. For it says in verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. You know, I love that verse. Because it is the beginning of hope. It was a very special surprise. It's what is known as serendipity. The wonderful surprise of finding something even more wonderful than you've imagined 
as you're searching for something else. Like discovering gold when you're digging for worms. Or like those four lepers in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 7, just outside of Samaria, who decided to risk their lives for food in the Assyrian camp, only to discover that the whole army had fled and left everything behind. Sometimes, you know, when we're upset the worst, something else happens. Something that we can't explain apart from God's amazing grace. So what a wonderful surprise began to unfold for these women. And when they entered that tomb, that cavern of death, instead of seeing a dead body, they found a man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side of the tomb. And, of course, they were very frightened. The man spoke and told them that they shouldn't fear, that the one they were looking for had risen from the dead and was no longer in the place of death. His body was gone. The man told them to go and spread the news to the disciples and Peter that he was risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he said. And so the reality of what had happened began to slowly dawn upon them and the disciples, and what has appeared to be the worst possible nightmare suddenly turned into the best news that anyone could ever have imagined. Jesus really had risen from the dead. The man they loved so much had burst the bonds of death and come back to life. The stone was rolled away. The grave was empty. What are the applications of all of this? To our lives. Well, there are many, but let me give you just three. First and foremost, we can trust the truth of the scriptures that Jesus really did rise from the dead. It really happened. It is the fact, this fact that makes our reason for being here today valid and important. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life, he says, we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, for me, it is the truth of the resurrection That is the bedrock, the absolute foundation of my faith. And because of the way it's presented to us in the scriptures, we know that we can trust this biblical record. And again and again, I find myself coming back to this truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, as was probably true for many young adults, I certainly, even though I'd grown up in a Christian home and atmosphere, came to a place in my life, uh, especially in the first year or two of university, where I was challenged by somebody else concerning my Christian faith. And I wondered, is this true? And as I thought about it and considered the account that's given to us in Scripture, I came to the conclusion at that time in my life that it is absolutely true, and I could build my whole life upon it. And I made a conscious decision that day that I was going to trust the biblical record concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And this has been foundational to my faith and to my life ever since. It's one of the reasons I'm 
here with you this morning is because I believe that this is true, and I came to the conclusion myself, even though I was challenged about the Christian faith. And if it's true, which I believe it is, that makes all the other claims of Jesus true as well. He was the Son of God. He did die for our sins. He will come back again. He is the only means by which anyone can be saved from sin and experience eternal life. In fact, I made a decision back there that if sin was the problem and Jesus is the answer, I wanted to give my life to that answer. And that's why I am doing what I'm doing. (laughs) Because I discovered, I concluded that Jesus really was who he said he was. Well, that's the first reason. The second reason is, it is the fact of the resurrection that fuels our sense of mission. And it makes us want to participate in Christ's church, despite all its difficulties. Sometimes as we look at the church with all of its fumbles and foibles, its faults and frustrations, we can easily become rather discouraged about it all, until we realize that the church is the most precious thing in the world to Jesus and to God. It is the apple of his eye. It is the very bride of Christ. He is building his church everywhere. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is moving it forward like a mighty locomotive, and nothing can stop its progress. Amen? We need to often look and see all the good things that are happening in the church despite its difficulties. So often we get fixed and people around us tend to do this. They want us to think about the negative things. And we think about those and we easily become bogged down. We see changes that trouble us. We have experiences that disappoint us. But if we just lift our eyes, we will see the many ways in which God is at work in his church. Maybe it's because I'm coming to you from the outside, but like a stranger that notices things that the regulars don't, I see many signs of God's grace among you. I see individual lives that beautifully reflect the grace and glory of God. I'm amazed by the gifts that have been planted among his people here in this church, and it is so encouraging. I'm especially encouraged by answers to prayer, even through this transition process. God really is at work. He is changing lives. And I hope you won't let the negative stuff get in the way of seeing the bigger picture of what God is doing in his church. And the last thing I want to say to you this morning <clears throat> is that like that with the women on the way to the tomb, you personally, you personally may be very discouraged about a whole lot of things, things that have happened in your own life and circumstances, disappointments. I've learned over the years that there are many sorrows in life, many things that are troubling and discouraging. There are times that seem overwhelmingly dark, and it may be that you are in that kind of space today. But you are doing your best to be respectable, while at the same time you try to tend to what you think is dead. You may be carrying buried spices, burial spices for the body. And the furthest thing from your mind may be the possibility that anything good will come out of what has happened. 
Your only thought might be about how you're going to move the stone, about how you're going to put one foot ahead of the next to go on. Well, this morning, because God is a God of hope, a God of the impossible, a God of the resurrection, I want to encourage you to look up like the women did and discover that the stone, which was, which was very large, has already been rolled away. I want you to remember these words. Look up. You might be surprised at what you'll see. Sometimes we've been looking down so long, it's hard to look up. And we've begun to stoop, right? Because we're looking down. But so often, it's in looking up that we discover the beginning of change. It was when the women looked up that they began to experience change. In Psalm 121, we read these beautiful words. words, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So many times in the scriptures, in the very midst of overwhelming circumstances, God's people were asked to look up, to look to the Lord for their salvation and their future. I think of Abraham as prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. How heavy his heart must have been as he raised that knife. But suddenly we read the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. Or just before that, think of Hagar, who was sent away in the desert with her son Ishmael. And there in the desert they ran out of water, and she put her son in her bush and waited for him to die. But as she began to sob, God heard her cry and opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. God brought salvation. In Luke chapter 21, 27 to 28, Jesus speaks to his disciples about the terrible things that would precede his coming again. And he says, And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to pass, then look up until uh, and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. So I want to say to you, all of you this morning that if you, like me, are inclined to be discouraged, consider the experience of these women on the path to the tomb. Consider the truth of the resurrection. Remember, God is in the business of bringing huge, beautiful plants out of seemingly dead seeds. Likewise, he's able to bring great things to pass out of the smallest seeds of faith. He is the resurrection and the life. In Zechariah 4.10, the word of the Lord came to the prophet asking, Who has despised the day of small things? I love that. And so this morning I'm asking you the question, have you come to the place in your life where you've looked up and see that the stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away? Have you put your faith in the Christ who rose again from the dead? If not, this would be a great day to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to him, to agree with him concerning your sin, to accept his forgiveness, to put your trust in the one who died for you and rose again from the grave. I wonder, are you going through a season of giving, uh, having given up, maybe given up on the church, given up on people, given up on life, 
You may be a Christian, but the fact is you're discouraged about many things. I want to urge you this morning to look up, to look to the one who hung on the cross for you, to look up and see that the stone which held him in the tomb has been rolled away, to lift your eyes and see that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and is praying for you. Look up and watch. Soon he will come again. I just want to say that in view of the truth of the resurrection, God's people, Christians, should be optimistic people. They should be people who believe and to trust, who say, yes, yes, we live in difficult days. We live in, well, there's so many different ways to describe them. But there's every reason in the world why we should be encouraged. We should be strengthened in the knowledge that Jesus has risen from the dead. We ought to be people of hope. We ought to be people of optimism. We ought to be people of expectation, of faith, and of trust in who God is and what he can do. So I urge you to respond to the truth of the resurrection with a spirit of hope and faith and trust. And, and yes, there may be things that you're discouraged about. I have things in my life that I'm wondering, when are they going to be fulfilled? But I keep trusting. I keep believing. I keep knowing that he is able. And I urge you to do the same. Let's pray together. Lord, this has been a wonderful celebration of uh, the greatest wonder of history that Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins, but then rose again. Lord, we thank you for how this gives validity to our faith, how it gives us hope, how it gives us strength for the journey that we're on. And many times we're just like those women that are walking along and we're discouraged and sad and we wonder how in the world are, are things going to change? How, how are things going to improve? How is the stone going to be rolled away that is in front of us? Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who rose again and triumphed over death in the tomb. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for how you are building your church in the midst of all the challenges and how you're doing that here in Tabor and in this particular community. We give you praise and thanks and adoration for who you are and for all you've done. Praise be your name. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we close the service uh, and worshiping the Lord some more.
today and all that it represents, sometimes one of the things to consider is, well, now what? What do we do? Um, I think in the simplest form is we live. We live to honor the Lord. And so this next song talks about the idea that we praise Him, but we also live. We live for Him. Um, We stand for the things that He stands for. We honor Him in obedience. We walk with Him and we praise His name for all that He's done.
grace You've lifted my shame Drawn me with love and kindness Washed whiter than snow You have redeemed
to all of these things. If God be for us, who can be against us? What a great time of worship we've had. I wish you guys could lead us in a greater extent extension of this music and worship that we could have a concert that would go on and on <laughs> praising God for his goodness. You've done a great job. Thanks so much for leading us today. <clears throat> I, I don't want you to leave today without experiencing God's answer in your life. And maybe if you have a problem, if you are struggling with something, if you want to come to faith and you want to pray with somebody, I'm sure there are those who would love to pray with you. If you came forward, sat at the front, or stay where you are, somebody will come alongside you and uh, pray with you today that you might experience the victory that we've been talking about here this morning. God wants to meet us. He wants to do a new thing in our lives as we put our hope in him. I want to leave you with a benediction from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It's a lovely benediction. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you might overflow in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May it be so as you go from this place today. Amen.